0: So this is after the resurrection. In Matthew's gospel, this is the final statement. Uh, These are the last words of Jesus before he leaves them. Uh, When the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, uh, Jesus had told them to go there. And verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Look at verse 18. Then This is what he says. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus um, is bracketing what he's saying by first of all saying, He is in authority over all. And at the other end of the bracket, he's saying, I'm never going to leave you. I'm always going to be with you, even to the very end of the age. So Jesus is the boss and he's always with us. Therefore, he says, this is what I want you to do. And what he wants people to do is to, as they go, make disciples of all nations. All all sorts of places. So in the ancient world, that starts with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Uh, and then around the Mediterranean. That's what we read about in the book of Acts. But we know that since then it's gone down into North Africa, it's headed up into Europe, it's gone up into Asia, it's even made its way down to Australia. And so that was Jesus' design as he left them physically that because he's in authority over the entire universe, people should be made disciples from everywhere in that world. Uh, And knowing that he's going to be with them wherever they are and whenever they're there. Now, what does it mean in this context to go and make disciples? The assumption that evangelism will work, work, but we don't get the word evangelise there. We get the make disciples. Yeah, So there's not a disconnect right, between evangelism and discipleship. In fact, if you go to Rome and there are no Christians in Rome, what's the first step in discipleship? It's hearing about Jesus. It's coming to Christ. And then as they come to Christ and they're baptised into the family of Christ, into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they are then taught to follow the teaching of Jesus. So discipleship is both entry and continuation in the Christian life. All right, let me take you to another passage. So come back to Matthew 16. Okay, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Peter has got it right. Fair call. Uh, He names him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. That's who he is. Jesus says, You've got it right. God's made this known to you. Then look at what he says. And I tell you that you are Peter... And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, which means the place of the dead, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what Jesus is doing, having been recognized as the Messiah, I take it, is saying, and this is what the Messiah is going to do. So when you look at that, he's named the Messiah and then he goes on to some random comment about, oh, yes, you're Peter and I'm going to build the church. But there's no disconnect there because that was the role of the Messiah. The Messiah was going to build a kingdom. He was going to build a dynasty. He was going to build followers. He was going to build a whole new kingdom with himself as the king and people sharing in that, following the king living in the light of the king. So what Jesus is saying here at this halfway point of Matthew's gospel is that Peter has it right. He is the Messiah and he's come to build the church and nothing's going to stop that. Death itself will not stop the church, which is quite a profound thing to be saying given where he's headed. Death. But then look at what he goes on to say. Peter objects to him saying this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. See, there's a plan and a purpose here. Jesus, as the Messiah, who's going to build his church, says it's something he must do. Die and rise again. Peter took him aside and said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus' way of building the church is going to involve him going to his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And then he says, verse 24, Then Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, Jesus, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah. What is the Son of God, the Messiah, going to do? He's going to build his church. The the church is the gathering of his people. How is he going to do that? Well, he must go to the cross, he must die on the cross and be raised from the dead. And then, what does he want from us? Well, he wants us to deny ourselves, take up our cross. In other words, say no to our own lives and follow Jesus. So what you've got here in capsule form (coughs) is really the three questions that I've been encouraging us to ask when we read the Gospels. Who am I? Well, he's the Messiah. What have I come to do? Die on the cross and be raised from the dead. What response am I calling for follow me deny yourself give up your life follow me see for Jesus entering into the kingdom becoming part of the church is becoming a disciple it's becoming a follower of Jesus that's what a disciple is Somebody is following Jesus. They're learning from Jesus as they follow him. And he had 12 guys with him at the time, had a whole bunch of other people that included women surrounding them who were also following Jesus. And now after his death and his resurrection, he's asking the 11 plus those who come to know him. I imagine the 3,000 at Pentecost or the 120 and then the 3,000 shortly after, and those who come after them, they've all got a task. They are all involved in calling people to follow Jesus. They're all involved in proclaiming that he's died and raised again from the dead so that people might be welcomed into the church that Jesus is building. And how's he building that church? By people going out and calling people in. So there's both a building in and a building up. Well, I can't remember the three things that I heard down the front here, but there's different aspects to this building, to this growing. There's different aspects coming into the kingdom, coming into the church as we put our trust in Jesus and following the king by denying ourselves and taking up our cross and living his way. Now... The scary thing, I think, for us is that we, when we think about evangelism, tend to think about a particular model. And for me, it was looking at people like Billy Graham, or the Spanish version of Billy Graham was uh, Louis Palau, who died in the last week at 86, um, reportedly having preached the gospel to over um, 3 million people who'd responded. Um, And I don't know what they say of Billy, but... Similar sorts of things. And to be thinking, well, that's, that's really the way to do it. Because if you can get one guy who can preach the gospel to three million people and they become Christians, then that's three million people who don't need to preach the gospel to anyone who are let off the hook, right? I'll just get in on Louis Palau's deal. Right? He's got me covered. But God's plan is it's something that we're all committed to. It doesn't mean you'll be a billy or a Rico Tice, or a Louis Palau. It doesn't mean that you'll go about it in a particular way. But as we live our lives, I take it, he's calling us to be part of his purpose of bringing people into relationship with God. And what I want to do with you for the next half an hour, or the next 25 minutes, is explore different ways that we can be a part of that. So, the first thing I want to say is that We will never be a part of this unless we have uh, become convicted that this is what Jesus is doing in the world. So I want to read to you first of all from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul speaking. He says, verse 13, if we're out of our mind, as some of you say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We get an insight here into Paul's motivation. That is, he's willing to be seen as crazy. He's willing to be seen as as in his right mind. It doesn't worry him much. Um, What does um, focus his mind is the love of Christ. The love of Christ actually compels him to live in a particular way. And it does so because he's convinced that one died for all. That is, Jesus died for all. And the purpose of him dying for all is that they might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, Paul, having come into connection, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, is now turned around completely to no longer live for himself, but for the one who died for him and was raised again. That, That makes sense? What was it that compelled him? The love of Christ. So if we haven't got the love of Christ... If we're not gripped by the love of Christ, then all that flows from this point is not really going to be that relevant. But if we have been gripped by the same love of Christ, that is, if we've come to know Jesus, if we've put our trust in Jesus, and he has invaded our life and brought us into relationship with him, this is kind of the logic that flows from it. That is, we are now living not for ourselves, but for him. We've got a new life. We've said... No to self. We've denied ourselves, taken up our cross and followed Jesus. So there's a a logic that's driving Paul here. It's, It's not a logic devoid of emotion. It's the love of Christ that compels him. But he can't do any other. There's no other way he could go. And where does it lead him? Well, it leads him significantly to a number of places. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come; the old is gone; the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See now, when Paul looks at people, he sees them differently. You go to school, you see other teachers. You go down to the beach, you see people surfing, lying around on the sand. You go to the shopping centre, you see people wandering up and down the aisles, they're gathering things. You go to the library, there are people pulling out books. Um, you, You go into the town at a busy time, and there's a whole heap of people in the traffic. The temptation is for us to see people purely in the light of what's going on in their lives at this time. There's a fellow surfer, there's somebody who's cutting me off in the traffic. They're somebody who's buying too many things and I've just got to get through that aisle quickly. There's all sorts of things that go through our mind. Paul's saying, if you understand what God is doing, what Jesus has done, then I no longer view people from that same point of view. So when he goes to the beach, I take it that Paul doesn't just see others who are surfers, he sees people for whom Christ has died and been raised again. When he's in that queue and there's a a whole heap of people in front of him, He's not just frustrated by the time that people are taking. He knows that Jesus died for those people. When he goes to the family Christmas and there are a whole bunch of people who have come from a whole range of different views on what life is all about, they're not just annoying relatives, they're people for whom Christ has died and been raised again. So he no longer sees people from a human point of view. He's now got Jesus-centered glasses to see people with. But it goes further. He says... All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us, Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore to you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, we lived for a a long time in Canberra. Canberra, the seat of politics, the seat of um, diplomacy, international diplomacy. And we have met people who are diplomats from other countries. Uh, We have good friends who have gone to other countries to be high commissioners and ambassadors. In fact, the current Chinese ambassador, uh, Graham Fletcher, is a Christian who was part of our church in Canberra. Um, The ambassador has one job. What is that job? To represent the country they come from. That's their job, to represent the country they come from. Graham's job as ambassador, Chinese ambassador from Australia, is not to make policy. He may wish that he could. His job is to represent the country and to do it well. To be somebody who the country trusts as their ambassador to another place. So what does it mean for us to be Jesus ambassadors? It's to represent Jesus, not to make up policy, not to determine what we should be doing with our lives and what other people should be doing in our lives. It's to actually take our cue from the one who sends us, take our cue from Jesus, and to live in such a way that we honour Jesus. Will that mean talking about Jesus? Yes, as we have opportunity, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But fundamentally, at its heart, it's just to be the representative, to be the ambassador, to be a good representative of Jesus. Will that lead us to talking about Jesus? Yes, it will. But I fear that if we are worried that we are not the best speakers, that we'll think evangelism is for somebody else or we'll think that I can't be an ambassador. And I want us to understand that the Bible has a range of perspectives that have to do with introducing Jesus, that have to do with being an ambassador for Jesus. And they're not all speaking, or they're not speaking all the time. Let me take you through them fairly quickly. Um, Asking God. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus sees the people, they're harassed like sheep without a shepherd, and he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest... Might raise up workers for the harvest. And so, what he's asking people to do is to pray that God will send people out to introduce people to the gospel of Jesus. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about praying for all people, and then he specifically mentions kings and rulers and governors and people in authority that we might live lives of peace because God wants all people to be saved. You can look at these references later. I'm skipping through them now. But there we've got two examples of praying that God will do something to bring people into relationship with himself. I want to take you to this next passage, though, to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4 and verses 2 to 4. Paul's writing to this church and he asks them to pray. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. I won't spend a long time on it. We're going to do Colossians at church next term, God willing. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Paul's in prison, as he writes this, and he asks that God will open a door for him. Now you think that's a pretty logical thing to pray if you're stuck in prison, that God will open the door, let you out. But he's not actually interested in the locks being undone. He's interested in people's hearts being undone. That God might open an opportunity for him to proclaim the message for which he is in chains. And pray verse 4 that he might proclaim it clearly as he should. So Paul sees himself as a proclaimer of Christ and asks that they will pray for him. But read on. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I'm going to come back to that. You'll notice the difference between that um, Paul's asking him to pray that he might proclaim it, and he's asking them to be ready to answer for it. So one's taking the initiative as the proclaiming, one's... Taking the response ability as the answerer. We'll come to that. So prayer, asking God. I take it if we are convinced that what God is on about is bringing people into relationship with himself, there are people out there who need to hear the great news about Jesus. One of the most important things we can do, and we can all do it, is pray for people to hear the good news of Jesus. I I want to encourage us all to have... um, names of people that we're praying for Um, you you could be crass about it and say your personal prayer hit list but no it's it's your love list it's your personal list of people that that you desire nothing better for them than that they might know Jesus and enter into a relationship with God second thing that I want to say is, is we could do no better really than watching the way jesus goes about living in this life um, if we're being called to follow jesus how did jesus live and without looking up all these references one of the things that we see is that jesus gains a reputation for being a friend of sinners um, people are saying, how come he's going to that person's house and that person's house? How come he's having dinner with these people and those people? Doesn't he know who he's with? She's a prostitute. Doesn't he know who he's with? He's one of these people who rip off the Jews and give the money to the Romans. Doesn't he know who he's with? He's one of these sinners. One of these unclean people. People are always criticising Jesus for hanging around with the sinners. But what did Jesus say? He didn't come for the healthy He came for the sick. He came for the needy. He came for those who need forgiveness, those who need relationship with God. And he gets a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. And I take it he was neither. But what we see from that is he must have hung out a lot, spent a lot of time having meals with people. And I think we can learn a lot from this. And I want to take you to... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because I think this is Paul putting what he sees from Jesus into action 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and I'll read from verse 19 Paul says though I am free and belong to no one I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul shows extreme flexibility while remaining godly to be culturally adaptive to those around him. Um, He makes an effort. To the Jew, he becomes like a Jew. To the non-Jew, he becomes like a non-Jew. He recognises that if he's going to invite Jewish people over uh, to have a meal, then it would be inappropriate to serve prawns and pork. That would be offensive. Um, so he thinks about the people that he's engaging with and he lives in a manner that will help them to have no stumbling block to hearing the good news of Jesus. Let, let me uh, take you to the next passage, which is only across the page. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's, that's interesting, isn't it, seeing what we looked at the first session? Do it all for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink. How could you eat or drink in a way that's to the glory or not to the glory of God? Well, read on. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. Paul sees himself as following Jesus. He's calling us to follow him. And he's just thinking about how he lives with people. He's not causing offence in how he goes about that. If someone's hung up on being uh, limited in the food or the drink that they can have, he's not going to make an issue of that. He'll give up his freedom for the sake of others. He will mix with people. The assumption of all of this is you're actually hanging out with a whole range of different people. Why talk about it for three chapters in 1 Corinthians unless you are mixing it with people in the world that you live in? And implicit in all of this is a very high value on hospitality, just engaging with people, having coffees together, having a drink after work together, inviting people over together, and so on. We see the importance of being flexible for the gospel. Uh, We also see, as we read on to the next section, how we live our lives matters. Um, Good lives matter. It actually makes a difference to people. In Matthew 5, I'll just point to this, Jesus says, you are to be salt and light. Um, If the salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. If the light is hidden, then how can people come to see your light and give glory to God. In other words. We're to live so as to be seen by those around about us. To live lives in the presence of others. John 13. Jesus says. And I give you a new commandment. Um, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Loving one another is a powerful testimony. To the reality of God. People. People are so often impacted by the lives of people who genuinely love each other. It stands out. There's a cynicism, isn't there, where where we say everyone's in it for themselves. Everyone's got an angle. Everybody's trying to work out how to get ahead. But when you're genuinely looking to love other people and serve other people, that's a powerful apologetic for the truth of Christ. And Jesus says, By this people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So if you're worried about not being able to preach like Billy Graham, can you love each other? If you're worried about not being Rico Tice and having wonderful descriptions of coming to Christ, can you pray to God for your friends and your neighbours? If you're worried about the fact that you might not have the perfect words to say to somebody, can you have a coffee with them? Buy them a beer after work. Have them over for a meal. Go on a barbecue together. Build the relationship. See, there's so many things that we can do if we have an evangelistic mindset. If we see ourselves as ambassadors, it's not all just talking. I think we just need to say this so much because I think I just felt browbeaten as a young Christian thinking, I've got to talk, I've got to talk, I've got to talk. I've got to always be talking about Jesus. And yet... In the Bible, there are some people who are told to evangelise effectively without using words. Verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, it's not talking about submitting to abuse. Right? I need to say that. Um, It's... It's saying you're not being pushy and seeking to get your own way. It's not all about you. Um, but it's also saying you don't nag somebody into becoming a Christian. Now I don't think this is the only example where that's relevant. See, if you've, if you've got a friend at work and you've shared the good news of Jesus with them and they've asked you about stuff and they know what you think and they could repeat it back to you, probably the thing that they don't need to hear is you say it again. Maybe it's more important that you pray for them, that God will soften their heart to respond to it. Maybe it's more important that you build the relationship of love and, and hospitality so that they come to understand that you aren't the only person who believes this, that there are a whole community of people who believe it. That adds plausibility, by the way. So the way we live our lives matters. In fact, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles that is, people who are not yet in their true home, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, that is, those who who don't know Jesus, um, or through the other nations, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Again, there's that glory again. If we want people to be in right relationship with God, to actually be glorifying God then how we live our lives in their presence is a powerful witness powerful witness um, an example that I heard the other day was of someone in a workplace uh, whose boss was asking them to lie um, and, and the, um, the worker said no I'm not going to do that and the boss demanded he said you've got to do that I need you to say this and he said no I'm not going to lie And um, it it was a standoff. And then the guy said to him, think about it. If I'm not going to lie for you, that means I'm not going to lie to you. It's a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? And there, I take it, is the example of somebody. So when the boss is looking around the workplace to share with somebody that he's going through a horrific time in his marriage and he wants to know that they're trustworthy, who's he likely to talk to? those who have always done what he says and lie to customers or the person who says he won't lie and can be trusted. Now there's an example. Um, But what about our words, okay? What about our words? Well, I want to come back to um, that difference. Stay in 1 Peter 3 if you're still in 1 Peter. But remember the difference that I pointed out in Colossians. Paul proclaiming as he should... In the original language, it says, and that you might answer as you should. So there's an imperative for Paul to be the proclaimer. And there's an imperative, that means you must do. uh, There's an imperative for all of us to answer as we have opportunity and to do it in a particular way. 1 Peter 3 says similar stuff. So let me read to you from uh, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed. So, reading that again, that, that you might be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have and doing that with gentleness and respect. Two things that I want to say about that. First is the manner in which we answer for what we believe. Doing it with gentleness and respect. I was involved um, a lot when I was in my... Uh, first couple of years of marriage and involved in full-time ministry in what we used to call dialogue meetings um, or basher Christian nights. Uh, The idea was that people would invite their friends and and they'd come and and if I was the speaker for that night I'd give a short kind of um, presentation of what a Christian was and then people would throw questions at me. And I came to realise that people were less interested in the answers than they were about the manner in which their questions were answered. See, if there was a humility of speaking gently to people, treating their questions with respect, um, with, with empathy, with kindness, uh, being willing to say, look, I don't actually know why that's the case. I struggle with that as well. Or, look, I'm sure there's an answer to that. I'm happy to go away and try and find out more about it. If I wasn't argumentative, if I was trying to win people to Christ rather than win the argument then there was a lot more gained. And I think what the Word of God is asking us to do here is not to have everything worked out, but to be ready to just say why we have the hope that we do. Which might be simply saying, because ever since I've trusted Jesus with my life, um, he's never let me down in any way. Now that would be a starting point. It might be something that's relevant to the conversation that you're involved in. might be saying, well, look, you know, I've I've often doubted, too, whether my prayers are being heard. But the Bible actually makes it clear that they are. And here's why I've come to believe that. Or it might be somebody um, thinking that I'm a bit of a weirdo because I believe in this Christian stuff. And me having the opportunity to say, well, I actually think it makes more sense of life than an atheistic view does. And I think it takes more faith to believe that everything's by chance than it does by God designing it for a purpose. See, there's a whole range of things that we could say in response that are giving a reason for the hope that we have. They're not giving a sermon for the hope that we have. They're not sprouting out uh, an evangelistic message for the hope that we have. They're conversational. And they're leading people towards Christ. And I think that's something that we can do to different ways in different measure. Um, For some of you who might be brand new as believers, you might be simply saying that, look, my life has really changed a lot. And you can probably see that it has. I I used to give no time at all to God and now he's constantly helping me to see what, what I'm like. And I'm grateful that God's spirit is changing me to become different. It might be that. But being prepared to give the right words at the right time is a part of this introducing Jesus mindset. Um, Introducing Jesus at church. Uh, I I won't look up this passage now because we're nearly out of time. But in 1 Corinthians 14, it says if if an outsider comes into the church and everybody's speaking in strange tongues, how are they going to know what's going on? But if somebody's prophesying as in speaking with intelligible words that are understandable, then God will use that to help them to recognise that they're out of step with him and they'll come to hear about Jesus and fall down and worship him. That's a quick summary of what the passage says. Um, But the implication of that being we should be focused not only on ourselves in church but about people who come in who may not be Christians people who are not yet following Jesus. And as a pastor in Salt Church, I, I want to hear, um, and I, was, I want us to be talking together about things that we think might make it difficult for us to bring a friend in or things that we might be concerned about if someone um, should pop along or things that we could do better uh, to make it um, a safe place for people to hear a, a, um, a dangerous message that will change their life forever. Um because in some ways, we want there to be 54 opportunities a year for people to hear the good news of Jesus. You're doing the Psalms? Okay, just, that was just to check if anyone's awake. So, Yes, Good Friday. And on a non... Uh, but there's another one you forgot about. What happens if it's a leap year and the 29th is a Sunday? Nothing, nothing happens at all. Um, sorry. Um, finally, um, who's responsible for seeing people become Christians? Who? Do you believe that? Well, we're with the, uh, we've been charged with the job of going out and giving the message and the disciples. Yeah, is anyone into gardening? Yeah, in gardening, right? Um, somebody puts the seed in the ground, don't they? Somebody. So that's Fiona. I get told to water it, which sometimes I do, but I'm grateful that God often waters it for me. Um, but then neither Fiona nor I produce the plant. We just don't. We wait. That's what we do. We wait, and water, and weed sometimes, and do other things. But um, that I think is the most liberating the most liberating and most important thing that we need to realise that neither you nor I can make anybody a Christian. We can't, we can't in one sense make disciples of all nations. I know that's the language that Jesus uses at the end but he's not presuming that that'll be something that we do on our own. We might share a word, we might follow it up with a loving act, we might pray for the people, uh, we might give a reason for why we believe, we might invite them to church. We might give them a book. We might meet with them and regularly go through Christianity Explored together. Uh, we might take them along to hear um, Rico Tice when he comes to Bonnie Hills. We, we might do all sorts of different things, but God will be the one who changes the heart and leads the person to be Christian. So we want to be connecting at SALT uh, with people. But we want to ultimately be connecting people to God. Uh, And at the end of the day, if Salt Church shrinks or stays the same size, but hundreds of people have come to know Jesus, then that's a great thing. It's not about salt growing in numbers. It's about people becoming followers of Jesus. That's what we want to be committed to. Um, I've I've gone over the time that I think the kids are going to come back in in a minute.